You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Now we're going to turn to God's Word. Uh, It's on page 740, and it's Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13 to 15. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So will he sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told they will see, and what they have not heard they will understand. Let me um, read and pray the prayer that comes from uh, the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, the Collect for the Second Sunday in Advent. I read it this morning and thought it was very appropriate. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of eternal life which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. May he grant it so. Four great questions in life. that If you can answer all four of them, you're there. The first is, why is there anything at all? Okay, that one hurts. And if you can answer that one, you'll make a fortune. The second is, who is God? Is there a God and who is he? The third is, who am I? And the fourth is the one that we're looking at this morning. If then there is a God who is holy and pure and good and just and righteous. And then over here, there's us who, no matter what we are, no matter who you are, you're broken, messed up, confused, sinful. Every one of your good deeds is tainted with sin. Even the good things that are good things that are done out of right motives, yet it's all messed up and mixed up. So how can we connect How can we be with that holy God? Uh, People who are not Christians and who can't be bothered with church and everything think, well, if there's a God, fine. He's obviously going to like me because I'm likable. And he's obviously going to love me because, you know, there's plenty to love. And he should be really thankful if I end up believing in him and, and serving him. But once you come to understand, once you move out of that fantasy world, and once you come to understand the reality of who God is, it is... It's really hard to believe, really hard to understand how God can accept us. So, in Isaiah, we've had God's people being taken into exile. God warning his people, God telling his people about their sin and uh, telling them about what's to come and telling them about how he's to deliver them. This and into chapter 53, which Isaiah 53 is, as you know, one of the most famous chapters in the whole Bible. From verse 13 of chapter 52, right to the end of chapter 53, this is known as the fourth servant song. And it's the great heart of the Bible. It's the great center of the good news about Jesus Christ. Now, the song comes in five verses. And I am going to do one sermon for each verse because it is so wonderful. And here's the question. How is it possible 
for sinful people to be holy. How can you get joy out of suffering? How can we be clean? In the earlier part there, they're talking about God has said to his people, get out and take the holy vessels. And yet the people say, well, how can I do it? How can I touch the holy things of God and and be clean? How can the tension between God's beauty and God's holiness and my sinfulness be resolved? Some people, as I indicated already, some people will say, well, there's holy people and there's, you know, there's good people and there's bad people. No. There's nobody righteous, nobody good. Nobody. And there's just this gap between all of us and God. Now, the answer that's given here is very, very unexpected. The previous example in the Old Testament that these people would have known is how can God's people be delivered was the Exodus. And the language that's used here is the language of the Exodus, where God brought his people out with great power. And so you would expect the answer to be, God will come and deal with his people and it will be just an enormous display of power. And some of you actually may say that. You may say, I would believe in God if he gave this enormous display of power. But the answer that God gives is so contrary to that. It is about a suffering servant. The personal servant who is both the priest and the sacrifice. So I want us to look just at the the first verse, if you like, of this song, which here is verses 13 to 15. First of all, it begins like um, some of these, sometimes you go and see a film and it has the ending at the beginning and the film tells you how you get there. Uh, Or you might, those of you who used to watch Columbo, you always knew who did it because at the beginning of Columbo, they told you. And then the rest of the program is telling you how Columbo gets to work it out. Well, here we're told what the end is. And I think that's important because, again, we'll come back to it at the end. But he begins by saying something about the servant acting wisely, being lifted, being raised and lifted up and highly exalted. We're told to look. We're told to see. We're told to behold. And that's what you're to do here. You are to open your eyes and you are to see Jesus. And in this service, in this place, I mean, it's beautiful singing together. It's beautiful being together. But my prayer absolutely is that you would see Jesus no matter who you are. Now, we're told things about Jesus, about this servant. We're told, for example, he will act wisely. It's a word that's used in 2 Kings 18 where it says, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not cease to follow him. He kept the commands the Lord had given Moses and the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. He acted wisely. By the way, that's what we pray for our new government and our new politicians, that they would act wisely according to the Word of God. In chapter, back in chapter 50 and verse 7, we read this, because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. He goes on to say, it's the sovereign Lord who helps me. 
And that's another, that's an earlier one of the servant songs. And what's been taught here about Jesus is that he acts wisely, but he's also lifted up. Now we'll see what he's lifted up from in a moment. But it's saying he's, at the end of the day, it's saying Jesus is the winner. It's a little bit like one of those Hollywood films or 24. You know with 24, Jack Bauer wins, whatever happens. It's not a spoiler to say that. Well, the story in the Bible is God wins. The story in the Bible is that Jesus wins. And that is what's being said here. And by the way, that's always a good place for us to begin because sometimes we begin with our defeats. And we instead need to go to God's victory. Now look what's being said here. He's raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Why is that significant? Why is that important? Because in Isaiah 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, we read, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. What Isaiah is doing is he's already going to this suffering servant, Jesus Christ, and he's saying, He's God. He is the Lord raised and lifted up and highly exalted. I think there's a hint here of the resurrection and exaltation of Christ. Acts 2.32, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact, exalted to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Here, we exalt people. We do it. You know how it works. Um, uh, I was, I was quite funny. I don't often do it, but I was traveling by rail yesterday, and for some reason I bought the Daily Mail. And uh, I couldn't believe it. It was like eight pages in which Ruth Davidson is the Messiah and the Savior of the world. I just went, no! Um, that wasn't a political point of view, by the way. It was just, nobody is. Nobody's, you know, you get, I'm presuming the national, the, before the election, they had a picture of Nicola Sturgeon like she was some Greek goddess. You went, no! They're not. They're not the Messiah. Or I guess if you were a, a, a Leicester City fan, Claudio Ranieri, you know, he was being worshipped yesterday like he was the Messiah. You've just won football. It's not the beginning of the world, never mind the end of it. I mean, it's just, it's, that's it. But we do that. We exalt people. We lift people up. We say they're brilliant. We say that they're great. And they always let us down. They always will let you down. You can lift somebody up and they will let you down. But here is Jesus, and he actually is raised, he is lifted up, and he is exalted, and he never, ever lets us down. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Here's the interesting thing. Christians do not worship someone who's dead, we do not worship someone who's far away, and we do not worship a potential. We are worshiping the living God who reigns and is exalted. And you might be here, and your personal circumstances may not be like that. But if you are connected to the one who is, then you are secure and safe. And you might be here, and your personal circumstances must be great. You you might be thinking that you're almost like the king of the world. But if you're not connected to Christ, it will all come to nothing. So, the first part of this first verse is telling us the end result is Jesus reigns. Jesus is on the throne. Jesus is the king. 
But, verse 14, just as there were many who were appalled at him, it's saying there were people who were against Jesus, and it's talking about the deep suffering of Jesus. I love what, there's an old, very old preacher called Chrysostom says this, what could be equal to this insolence? Even the sea on seeing the face of Christ gave it reverence. Even the sun when it beheld him on the cross turned away its rays. Yet on his face they did spit and struck it with the palms of their hands and some on the head giving full swing in every way to their own madness. And Isaiah begins to describe what happened to Christ on the cross that his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, his form marred beyond human likeness. I hate crucifixes, and I'll tell you why. First of all, Jesus is down from the cross. And secondly, whenever I've seen them, they have a picture, a statue of Jesus on the cross looking good. And he wasn't looking good. The only description we have of Jesus is here in Isaiah, and it says that he was so distorted that people turned away their face in horror. Um, I'm not very good with blood. That's why I could never be a doctor or a nurse. I see blood, and I'm gone. You know, I just, it doesn't work for me at all, and I admire those of you who can do it. Um, when we see stuff that's ugly or horrible, And one of the things, by the way, I think one of the problems with the technology we've got today is people become desensitized to the horror of of death and blood and so on. But I still find find myself, if I'm watching something and there's, you know, excessive violence, I still find myself, you know, shutting my eyes because it's just appalling. It's horrible. Death, I think, in computer graphics has become glorified. But in reality, it is horrendous. And especially this death of Christ. They spat on him, the creator of the world. They they mocked him. They abused him, the one who raised the dead, the one who cared for the sick and for the poor. They laughed at him. And he was in such agony. He wasn't on the cross smiling serenely at people. He was in agony as he bore the sins of the world. So much so that if you'd looked at him, you'd have said, that's not human. He was dehumanized. People were appalled. They were shocked. They were shattered. Not only is that Jesus, but is that human? Uh, Neil and Jenny are going to South Sudan. I've read some of the stuff that's been going on in South Sudan, and it's appalling what's been happening there. And sometimes you read from some of the better writers who are like war correspondents, and they talk about how they see people so mutilated and so disfigured that they they wonder if they were human at all. And that's what this is saying about Jesus. So we go from this enormous, glorious height that we cannot grasp to a depth that we cannot really understand that causes us to turn away our faces Jeremiah 18, 16 says this, their land will be laid waste, an object of lasting scorn. All who pass by will be appalled and will shake their heads. He was regarded as unclean. Come out from them, says the Lord earlier in Isaiah, touch no unclean thing. And then there is Jesus who is unclean. He's hung on a cross, which is the ultimate curse. 
And people would walk by, and do you know this? Your good people would walk by and say, he must have done something really bad to have that kind of karma. He must have, there must have been something really wrong with him. And here is the astonishing thing. The one who looks so unclean that even sinful human beings turn their face away, appalled and disgusted, is the one who cleanses those very same human beings. And that's what verse 15 goes on to say. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. You have the servant's great exaltation. You have the servant's great suffering. You have then this image. Um, I don't know how many of you use Facebook. Well, I know quite a lot of you use Facebook. Um, but it's, it's a strange, strange thing, isn't it? You know, and you've got these kind of, you can like Facebook posts. Well, now they put up a thing that you can unlike, but you can also have these kind of emoticons. And one of them is that you can have an open mouth. The, you're either in wonder or you're shocked. You can do one of these things. Well, in a way, this is what's being said here, that this is just so surprising and it's so shocking. It's not just like or dislike. It, it's, wow, what is going on here? What is, is, is happening here? It's asking, and can it be? Really? The wisdom of God confounds human wisdom. And that's, by the way, why does he mention kings here? He mentions kings because in this culture, kings were perceived to be the people who were wise. Now, we don't understand that because we don't automatically assume that our politicians are wiser than us. Most of us probably assume the other way. But in that culture, they did. And so kings, what we're being told is the, the wise ones, they will, be, they will shut up. They will close their mouths. They'll stop talking because they are so amazed at what God has done. Many will be convicted. What they're we're not told they will see, what they have not heard, they will understand. Um, chapter 53 and, and verse 11 says, He will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many he poured out his life unto death, was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many. So you've got this picture of the one dying a horrible death on a cross, and you've got the many, he's dying in darkness, and you've got the many coming into light because of that. Now, let's just unpack it a little bit. Sprinkle many nations. Uh, those of you who are Baptists, just take a deep breath. <laughs> um, it's what we're going to do here. It's, it's actually not about that. Sprinkling many nations. First of all, some people understand it. The word could be translated that he'll startle. He, it, it'll, it'll shock people. We've already got that. But here, sprinkle is a technical word that's used for sacrificial cleansing. And it was used of scattering blood or water. So 1 Peter 1, 2, you've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by His blood. Here's the interesting thing. In this church, we're a Presbyterian church, 
Um, we don't really have hang-ups about baptism. You can be baptized by immersion because it signifies dying to sin and rising in Christ. You can be baptized by pouring, signifies the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And you can be baptized by sprinkling because it also signifies the cleansing, the cleansing of the blood of Christ. It's what happened in the covenant. Exodus 24, verse 6, Moses took half of the blood, put it in the bowls, and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said, we will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. This covenant that God made to save people, in the old covenant, it's primarily, but not exclusively, with one nation. Here, it's the many, it's the many nations. He will sprinkle many nations. The Jewish people are being told, yes, you're going to go back to Jerusalem, but the servant will sprinkle many nations. Again, Neil and Jenny going to the Sudan or people here from uh, Malaysia or China or Namibia or Australia or France or wherever you're from, that's part of Christ's work, that his, his work is over the whole world. It's interesting that Paul cites this verse when he says in Romans 15, 20, it's always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I'd not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who are told about him will, those who are not told about him will see and those who have not heard will understand. I don't understand any Christian church that is not missionary and evangelism-minded. I don't understand, because to be Christian, that's what you are. To be Christian, you realize Christ is for all the nations. To be Christian, you realize Christ is for the whole of this city of Dundee and, and all the surrounding places as well. And we want people who've not been told to see, and we want people who haven't heard to understand. Many will see. Many will understand. That's what the cross does. It's funny how so many Christian churches have got to the point where they think that the cross is a stumbling block to people and we need to get people in first and then, then eventually we can get them there. Well, it's, I think it is a stumbling block to the world, but it's life to those who hear, to many who hear anyway. Many will see, many will understand. What will they see? They will see Christ. They will understand His work. They will believe that He's raised from the dead. See, people say, I'd believe in Jesus if I saw Him, or I'd believe in Jesus or God if this happened or that happened. And God's answer is, you will see, but what you see is what I have done in my Son. You see the reality of the work of Christ. You see the reality of the person of Christ. And the astonishment comes from the preaching of the gospel. Because the good news is saying this, Jesus is your priest. Jesus cleanses you. Jesus sprinkles you, if you like. Jesus is your sacrifice. It's just an incredible thing for any one of us to grasp or to realize, because we come back to our main question. If God is holy and pure and righteous and good, and I am not how do we get connected? And religion's answer and the world's answer is, if you like, well, I will do everything that I can to get near to God. I will try and be better and read and pray and do whatever. 
And God's answer is no. I have done it. And the gospel all the time is telling us what God has done. And you know what? The devil all the time wants us to doubt that gospel. Some of you are Christians. Many of you are Christians. And you'll say, oh, no, no, I know this. I already believe the gospel. And my answer to you is, no, you don't. Because you don't live it out. And because you're beset by doubts and fears and, and you're concerned and worried, many, many things are piled in upon you. And those fears and things are all real. But you need to look beyond that to remind yourself of the gospel, to remind yourself of who Jesus is and what he has done. It's a paradox. If you were to pray, one of the most dangerous prayers you will ever pray is, Lord, show me my sin. Because right now, let's say I knew some of your sin and I, you know, bunged it up on the screen or I picked you out. I'm not going to do it, by the way, so don't panic. But I, I, let's say I was able to say, listen, you are this. And you saw something of what you were and others knew you'd be so appalled, you'd be so horrified. Sometimes when God lets us see what we are, it's beyond embarrassing. It's beyond humiliating. It is just, you just, you get overwhelmed by it. And you wonder how anyone could accept you Never mind a holy God. In far too many churches, the answer to that is to say to people, God doesn't really care, or your sin is not really that bad. But God does care, and your sin is worse than you imagine. And then God comes and says, this is how your sin and my holiness can be reconciled. Nothing but the blood of of Jesus. Philippians 2.4, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I read a lot of stuff, and I listen to a lot of stuff. And I keep hearing about this is what we need to do to revive the church and this is what the church needs to do and this is what the country needs and this is what your family needs and this is what you need. And a lot of it may be true. A lot of it may be real. But the very heart of what you need, the very core of what you need, the very core of what the church needs is just here in this whole song and even in this first verse. You need to see Jesus high and lifted up, exalted and glorified. You need to see Jesus humiliated, abused, tormented by your sin and my sin and the sin of the world. 
And you need to be utterly amazed that because of these two things, you are lifted up. You are exalted. You are with Christ in heaven if you belong to Him, if you believe in Him, and if you trust in Him. Because there's the last great question that I want to finish with. What are you basing your hope and your life and your trust upon? Some of you, I think, I really do think there's actually only two real choices. One is to say, I can do it. I can make it on my own. Whatever there is, I'll sort it out. It'll be okay. And the other is to say, just simply, I can't do it. I can't make it on my own. I have to trust in the one who loved me and gave himself for me. There are people who love you and have done many good things for you, but there's nobody who's done for you what Jesus has done for you. And no one will come anywhere near doing for you what Jesus has done for you. It's just such incredible good news. It's just such incredible good news. I uh, meet every two months with a group of people uh, in a thing called ICU Steps, people who've been through very, very serious illness uh, up at Nine Wells in the ICU unit, and they come here and with their families, and we just share experiences and talk about things. I think the number one emotion that most of them have, apart from a thankfulness that they're still alive, is fear. Because their bodies have been proven to be so weak, and they've got so near to death, and they are so scared. And you know this? There's nothing that the psychologists or the psychiatrists or the staff or anyone can give them compared with this. Because your hope is in Jesus Christ and Him alone. Now, here's a very strange thing. Supposing you came into this church this morning, and supposing you've never been in church before, and supposing this is the first time you're hearing about Jesus, you might think, do you know, I have to find out more, and I have to go through a course, and I have to do this, and I have to do that. The answer is no, you don't. You could come in here, and you could be hearing about Jesus just now, and God is speaking to you, and you just, you just simply say, that's what I need. I need forgiveness. I need to know that all the wrong things are forgiven and taken away. I need to rely on someone who is absolutely good, absolutely pure, absolutely trustworthy, absolutely holy. And you can do that right now. You could have been hearing this for many, many years, and you, you may think, my chance is gone. I've heard it. I've heard it. I've heard it. I haven't really accepted it. I haven't, in the old words, closed with Christ. I haven't given my life to Jesus. It's too late, and the Lord is merciful to you. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, so He's let you hear it again. And you may be here, and you are a Christian, and you do believe this. But to be honest, the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of wealth, the worries of this life, they've come in and they've swamped you and they've taken away your joy and they've, they've taken away the, the closeness, the love that you had for the Lord and you're just burdened by it all. 
And what does the Lord come? He, he comes and he doesn't say, right, I'm going to give you a second blessing. He says, I'm just, remember, this is what happened. This is what I've done for you. You don't need anything else, nothing but the blood of Jesus. He sprinkled many nations. Kings shut their mouth. There isn't a single person here that can turn around and say, it won't work for me or it's not for me. It is for you. And so that question is, what will you do with Jesus Christ? Will you accept him? Will you trust him? Will you believe in him? Or will you walk out the door and just say, no, I'll do it my way? May God grant that's not the case. We'll just take a, a few moments in silence to think about what's been said before, we, uh, before I say a prayer and then we finish with singing. So let's just think about this in silence for a while. Lord, I thank you that as we hear the sound of a, the new life of a baby gurgling in, in, in the silence, so also we are conscious of new life spiritually in our own midst. Thank you for those who have come to faith recently. Thank you for those right here in this place who you are working in right now. Thank you for reminding all of us and proclaiming to all of us the sheer wonder of the good news that those who are not told have now been told and see, and that those who've not heard have now heard. And Lord, grant that each one of us here understands. Help each of us to exalt and rejoice and to ourselves be lifted up because we see the exalted one, the risen one, the glorified Christ, and trust in him with all our heart, soul, and mind. In your name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.